Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. My name is Dan Cottrell. I'm head coach with Rugby Coach Weekly and I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Nick Hart. Nick is head of Courthouse Primary School in Berkshire and an educational writer on his blog, This Is My Classroom. He has a sports science degree. He tells me he played scrum half and wing at school, but his main sport is soccer, where he was a semi-pro goalkeeper in his day. Uh, so he did does have some experience of handling the ball, I suppose. We'll, we'll give him that. Uh, Nick runs a lot of CPD for primary school teachers, and he was on a podcast this morning, no less, and uh, works with teachers as well. And he, it was his blog around scaffolding that led me to want to explore this area more. And I got in touch with him, and here he is. So welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you very much, Dan. Pleased to be here. Good to, to chat sport and, uh, and learning. Great. I, I mean, I suppose um, before we even get into talking about scaffolding, um, my first ponder really is the link between what happens in the classroom and what happens on the sports field. Uh, if we had a sort of Venn diagram of what that looked like, what's the sort of crossover in your experience? So um, that's a, a very interesting question um, because uh, over many years, there's there's lots of talk of whether um, whether skills are transferable, whether whether teaching teaching skills, um, particularly whether they're transferable, and I think um, that there's a lot of uh, nuance to that. But I would say that in the middle of this Venn diagram, there's um, there's the understanding of how anybody learns anything. So um, this is I'll be quite backed up by research that for anyone to learn anything, they need to have adequate prior knowledge. They need to to know a little bit about what they're learning about. They need to have an expert model what they need to do. They need to have someone explain what it is that they need to do. They need to have a chance to practice whatever that thing is. And um, they also need to get some timely and useful feedback on what it is they've been practicing. Um, sometimes if those tasks are difficult, they'll need to be scaffolded, which you'll talk about in detail later. But um, I think that the central part of, uh, of that Venn diagram is um, the fact that whether we're learning to uh, to, to um, pick a ball out of scrum, whether we're learning to teach children how to um, divide fractions, there are some conditions about learning that are still that need to be met in order for for children or players to be successful. So you've given us um, quite a good model for us to think about. There, could you? Um, I'm putting you on the spot here. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, rugby, football, or in the classroom. But could you sort of give us an example of how that might build through? So we start with, you, as a as a to coach and teacher, you've got to understand they've got some prior learning. So how do we how do we start that process? I mean, uh, before I answer that question, Dan, there's, I mean, I've got a kind of a, a secondary answer to that first question about Venn diagrams. I wonder if it's worth explaining a bit about that first, and then going into an example. Yeah, definitely. That'd be useful. Okay. Um, so uh, if if in the middle of the Venn diagram, we've got um, the conditions for learning, which are uh, generally applicable to whatever situation we're, we're, whatever thing we're trying to learn, I think there, there are some notable specific 
conditions on either side of the Venn diagrams, conditions that are specific to teaching in the classroom and, and conditions that are specific to teaching and uh, coaching rugby. And I think if I start with, um, with with the classroom first, which is obviously the bulk of my uh, professional expertise. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of good t- research into, t- into teaching uh, and what, 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 what's effective in in, um, in in teaching, and one of the most important things is the, is the teacher's subject knowledge. The, t- the teacher has to have um, a well crafted mental model of the thing that they're teaching. Um, but that's that that involves lots of smaller things. It, it involves in school. It's the curriculum that that children will be learning, not just what they're learning right now, but what they may have learned in the past and what they're going to learn in the future. An understanding of that progression um, from before they came into your classroom to where they're going when you've left is really important. Another thing is that not just the content. I mean, uh, you can have people with degrees in a subject, uh, but may not be great teachers because they may not know how children think about the subject content. So, so knowing how children engage with that content and what the likely misconceptions are and when those misconceptions are likely to arise, those are things that make um, an effective teacher. But you also need to have a knowledge of of the children in front of you, the, what they know, what they don't know, how they react to challenge, how they um, are motivated, uh, what kind of feedback works best for them. And then, you, and then the final strand of this this uh, subject knowledge, this content knowledge, is uh, the the best way to teach a particular thing. So uh, it might be that, uh, for example, teaching children to subtract uh, large numbers. One of the better ways of doing that is using concrete physical resources to, to show what happens when you're exchanging between tens and hundreds, for example. So if you combine all those things, um, th- th- there's a real deep subject knowledge needed to be a good teacher in a classroom. And I think there's, uh, although it's not the same thing, the same domain of knowledge, that, that some of it is applicable across the other side of the Venn diagram. A good rugby coach has a great mental model of what uh, effective rugby looks like. They they know the progression of how uh, a player develops. That that's the curriculum. Um, they they'll they'll know what misconceptions players have and when they're going to make a mistake. Uh, a, a good coach will spot a player making a mistake, about to make a mistake before they make it. Um, and the same goes for the other conditions. Really, that that there are some good ways of teaching certain things, uh, and there are more appropriate ways and less appropriate ways. And of course, a good coach knows their players inside out. They know when to push, when to challenge, when to back off. So I think there, there is, there's definitely the, the differences are to do with the domains that each one has. A good rugby coach won't necessarily be a good classroom teacher and vice versa because a coach, a good coach, a good teacher relies so much on that well-connected, well-organized mental model of the domain that they're working in. I mean, this idea of mental models, uh, something which uh, is becoming more and more prevalent, uh, talking about things like game modelling and in soccer, certainly a lot of coaches at the top level are beginning to understand that this is very important for them to un- to be clear on why they're coaching this now, because mm-hmm. they know where they've come from, where they are now and where they're going. And I suppose this is quite scary for rugby coaches who haven't necessarily been coaching for a long time to understand to understand that i mean if you've been with if you're coaching maybe once or twice a week how are you going to build that mental model i mean that's a that's a different sort of question whereas a classroom teacher 
is obviously practicing every day, uh, three or four or five times a day, every 30, 35 weeks of the year. So just, I suppose this is a completely supplementary question and not one of the questions I was going to ask originally. Are we expecting too much of sports coaches who are maybe going and coaching two to three hours a week in comparison to all the expertise that a classroom teacher has got? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I think uh, that there's a, the, the research into developing expertise is, is interesting. There's that there's that 10,000 hour rule, um, isn't there, about it, t- it takes 10,000 hours to master uh, a thing where um, I'm, I'm really badly representing that research but I can't draw to mind where it's from yeah I think it's, I think uh, it's Ericsson and it's got a one, yeah. it's got a very um, mixed mixed yes. reception to it uh, but I think that um, one has to be careful because the mixed reception isn't necessarily based on what he meant in the first place exactly and and the, the point is that it's not the time you spent doing something the time you spend doing something it's how purposeful that practice is so yeah. that uh, that in, in in teaching there's there's some interesting research that suggests that um, teachers plateau after about two or three years they don't get any better they get better really quickly in the first few years at teaching and they don't really get any better after that of course there are some exceptions to that um and and that if you're doing that day in day out um it can be uh, practice that isn't leading to improvement so the time dedicated to teaching or coaching um isn't the important factor the important factor is how deliberate that practice is if a coach only has two hours a, a week of, of contact time with their players, but they're spending um, other time planning the sessions, learning themselves and d- developing their coaching practice, then they, they could quite easily develop at a faster rate than somebody who's doing it um, day in, day out. Well, you've sold this podcast beautifully because, of course, everyone who's listening in is probably in that position and thinking, right, well, I am really ready because I've not plateaued yet. Uh, All those uh, maths and physics teachers that my children are um, (laughs) sitting through, uh, they've plateaued, but I'm on an upwards path and therefore I am very open to listening about Mm. to this expertise. So in this very silly way, I'm going to ask about scaffolding. Okay. Uh, So... um, We'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, but we're saying scaffolding is a metaphor for learning design. Um, so what should we picture in our minds that scaffolding is, perhaps with a football example or it could be a rugby example? Um, so it's an example that comes to mind uh, from my playing days as a goalkeeper is uh, one uh, one aspect of goalkeeping would be uh, claiming crosses. Uh, so um, a, a, a the ball struck into into the goal area, uh, and the goalkeeper needs to navigate their way through a crowd uh, and take the ball at high at its highest point uh, and kind of defeat any any attack, which is a, a very complex, difficult task to do. There's lots of aspects to that. There's um, there's the starting position. There's the judgment of uh, the flight and the speed of the ball. There's the uh, navigating way through a crowd of players. There's uh, taking off on the right leg. There's taking the ball at its highest point. There's protecting yourself from challenges. So there's lots of aspects to that, uh, which are very complicated. And um, I mean, just like uh, just like sort of marathon run training, you don't get better at marathon running by running marathons. You have to kind of break that down. And I think the first important part of scaffolding is to take a complex task and break it down into small chunks. And I remember as a uh, 
a teenage goalkeeper finding it really hard to uh, to, to take crosses from the right hand side because my natural um, taking off leg was my was my left leg, and so I was naturally more suited to to jumping and getting good height uh, when the ball's coming from the left hand side compared to the right hand side. So I I literally had to practice uh, jumping off of my right leg because that was hindering me in the very complex task of doing it in a game. So uh, in terms of uh, the scaffolding, that breaking it down would, would involve uh, the coach understanding all the tiny parts that build up to a complex uh, task, teaching those bits individually, um, and then gradually combining them uh, and then adding in uh, eventually when there's proficiency in the actual task, adding in the, the game sense, the decision making into that because that's ultimately the hard part players can quite easily become technically quite good but it's the game decisions that that sets people apart and and as a goalkeeper it's the game decisions that make or break whether you get to play the next game or not so um the the chunking or the breaking down um i suppose what you worry about is uh the connecting it all together yes um and obviously that's the the game sense but if you say did things in isolation how are you going to help a, pl- a player or a, a any anybody in a learning situation pull it together i suppose that's the skill of the coach what, what sort of things do you do it is yeah i mean um so there has to there has to be proficiency in each individual chunk yeah, a player has to be able to and, and a child in a classroom has to be able to perform or to carry out uh, the small aspects of a task to automaticity to where where they're done without thinking um, okay, so I'm going to pick you up on a, a piece of jargon, which I, I mean, I I've, I know what the jargon means, and I really like it. So it's autosensitivity. Automaticity. Automaticity. So where you can do something on autopilot without thinking. So you're, you're not taking up any of your working memory to, to think about what to do. It happens naturally. Um, so uh, I, I, I kind of, I suppose, a rugby example. Uh, of that would be um, perhaps a, a, a scrum half um, t- taking the ball out of the back of a scrum and hit, hitting the, the the fly half with the, with the pass at the right speed, the right uh, angle. Often won't take too much thought. It happened because it, it happens. It's so it's repeated so much. It's it, it's it's almost automatic. It doesn't take too much thought. But uh, what's happened is, of course, they've done many of those types of passes in training. Yes. And therefore, when it actually comes to it, it, it just it just happens. And then they're thinking a bit more about uh, the awareness of when to pass as yes. opposed to how to pass. And of course, and what that does, I mean, uh, when you're if you scaffold that task, that 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 releasing the ball from a scrum, for example, if you're scaffolding that over time, what that does is it gives um, if you if you practice that enough, so it is automatic. It allows the player to not focus on the task they're doing right now, but to think maybe the next phase or the, the next move, or to be aware, more aware of what's going on around them. A player who is not um, automatic with that particular pass may not notice the opposing number creeping round, ready to uh, ready to, to to make the tackle if they're too slow. They might not. Because of that, that, that cognitive load of concentrating fully on the task at hand, they're unable to process the other things in the environment around them. And that's, uh, I, I mean, teaching, that's a, a similar thing. Sometimes um, classrooms can be too, when I say noisy, I don't mean 
um, I don't mean sound, I mean too much uh, stimulation to, to enable concentration. But the reason for doing things to automaticity is that, 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 that the task in hand doesn't need thinking about. And so you can pay attention to the other things in the environment around you. Yeah, pay attention being the the, the key there, really, yes. and uh, not not overloading yourself. So we've got yeah. chunking is one one part of the of of scaffolding. So how does scaffolding work around that? So I, I said my picture is of a building with uh, poles and things holding this building together. What what why is it why is chunking scaffolding? Uh, or is it uh, step outside the metaphor? Uh, no, I mean, the whole point of scaffolding is, is a temporary measure. It is something that uh, allows, say, uh, well, it, in, in real terms, allowed the, allows the building work to happen. Um, right. the other, otherwise, it wouldn't be able to happen. Um, and so the whole point of scaffolding is, is temporary. It allows something to happen that may not be uh, able to happen. It's, it, it, it then gets removed at the end when it's no longer needed. And right. when, when you break tasks down into small chunks um, and allow practice to automaticity eventually you players don't need to do that anymore because they are they are fluent and uh, expert in that thing because of all the practice they've had right okay so uh, chunking is one aspect of scaffolding yes there are many others there are and i think um uh, another one that's useful to think about in a the, in a in a classroom in a sporting context is uh, the use the use of partially completed examples. So, right, okay. in, a in, a, in a classroom, um, there might be a very complicated thing to do. For example, uh, short division involves several steps that um, all rely on each other and are, on the face of it, quite abstract and complex. But um, in order to to get children used to the entirety of that thing, sometimes we can just give them. Uh, an example that needs finishing off rather than doing it in its complexity. It's, it, it's less overwhelming. It's less, um, it, it, it's less strain on their working memory on its less cognitive load. Uh, and so what we, what we might do is just say, here's a, a, an example of a division question that is almost finished. Just finish it off um, with the last step. And what you do is over time, uh, or, or maybe um, even in, the, in that one particular lesson, as as they move from one question to the next they do slightly more than the time before they do slightly more than the time before they do slightly until in the end what they're doing is the whole thing so um i think a, a rugby example of that might be if you've got uh say a second row um doing a complex thing of taking a ball in a line out um then it may be that you want them to focus on the whole thing of uh uh, starting position, taking the ball its highest point against um, opposition, keeping hold of the ball, um, and ma managing to move the ball out uh, to the scrum half, ready to move on. I mean, that's all very complicated. So it might be that to teach second row how to do that, you you, you maybe don't worry about the first bit and just focus on the last bit. For just just focus on uh, you've uh, imagine that you've landed, you've held the ball, you're just finishing this move off now. Get the ball to the scrum half. And you gradually increase what they're doing in a chain so that they're doing more and more and more and eventually doing the, the whole movement. It's a bit like um, that, that crossing example, I suppose, in some ways. But you're, you're building up the, the, the link of um, steps in a complex task over, uh, over, over a period of time in a training session or, or, or longer until they're com confident and expert in the whole thing. 
Uh, here, it sounds like you're doing uh, something, well, I understand it to be called backwards chaining, as you, you start yeah. at the end and yeah. then you work backwards through the chain. So you, you know what it finishes like. So quite often we yes. might, if we break down a, um, a skill or um, a, a situation into its chunks, we start at the beginning and they, no one really knows what it's supposed to finish up like. Yes. And really the finish is the most important part. So yes. I, right, I see that. I like that idea of uh, we've got to sort of think, right, let's start at the end and then add mm. bits in. Okay, so another thing which I thought was very interesting, certainly, uh, so that's in action. Um, another part of scaffolding is to give sufficient time to process instructions and work on tasks. Now, I think that this is something which coaches may struggle with because either they spend too long um, giving out instructions and then they, they lose the lose the crowd or they just let them get on with it and they can't understand why it's why it's why it's not going right what do you mean by sufficient time to process instructions how would that look like for you so so in a class uh if it's sometimes it's really hard to to focus children's attention on exactly what you want to do and the, the craft of teaching is all about getting your instructions across and your explanations across in a succinct manner that children can understand and we fool ourselves into thinking that just because we've said it they've understood it uh, and so uh, sometimes it takes time for those to sink in uh, and what we can fall into is the kind of the expert knowledge gap just because we understand things as a teacher or a coach just because we have said uh, given an instruction you can't assume that that instruction has been received and understood in the same way that it is in your own mind. Um, right. And so sometimes that involves just some silence for them to process the instructions you've just, just given. Sometimes it means repeating verbatim the instructions a couple of times. I mean, this is a particular uh, strategy that works well for children with dyslexic tendencies that uh, sometimes you might ask a question and get nothing back. And we think that it might help by re rewording the question in a different way, because that might help with understanding. Actually, that child needs to hear the same words again and process the same words again. And they don't want to hear another another version of it. And so what I mean by... Ah, right, giving, okay. So that, just, giving, so that repetition yeah. is actually well worth doing. So yeah, almost I mean, exactly the same thing again, not in a different way, but the same thing again. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a useful strategy for children with dyslexic tendencies, but we, we sometimes we, we kind of do things opposite that, uh, that aren't helpful um, because uh, we, we don't know any better. And I suppose on a, uh, on a, uh, in a coaching situation, it's, quite, it's, it's, it's too easy sometimes to, to, to get players together, give an instruction, uh, um, and then they might look at you and nod, and then you set them off, and they don't do what you just asked them to do. I mean, that, that surely is a persistent problem in coaching is that you've mm. given an instruction, you tell them what you want to do, and then they go out, get out onto the pitch, they don't do it because maybe they didn't understand the instruction. Maybe they didn't fully get what you were explaining. Uh, and so there has to be sufficient time for them to process um, the instructions that you're giving in order for them to be successful in that task. And I suppose also they uh, initially, when they hear it for the first time, they are thinking about working memory and cognitive yes. load they're, they're trying to take it all in and yes. at the end of it they've got an idea and they think 
Right. So sorry, where, where do I start again? So it's well worth yes. maybe repeating almost exactly what you said yeah. uh, because they're used to it and then they can pick up the things which are, which are, are, are important to them. Definitely. Oh, and then this, tie, this ties in with uh, another good scaffold, which is presenting information in graphic organizers. Now, what we know about explanations and instructions is that if we just do it verbally, orally, um, words are transient. Once they're out there, they can be perceived by the person listening, but then they're gone uh, unless they're, the, the other person's managed to retain them in their working memory somehow. But if you've got the information that you want presented graphically that's more permanent and you can use words uh, words and images together to put your point across I mean a good example of this is in coaching is the tactics board you've got the position of players uh, and the movement of uh, the movement of the specific positions to go along with explanations which is why that's so important to to, to use in a coaching situation um, as much as possible because words alone can be lost I mean even especially in uh, a situation where players are tired, out of breath, frustrated that they may have uh, made a mistake, that all leads to uh, players less likely to actually hear and process what you've what you've given them. So you, combining words with images is a far better way of getting instructions across than scaffolding with one. Yeah, and uh, we have to um, jump in here, not that you said it, of course, is that uh, there's no such thing as learning styles. So it's not that one child is... Uh, uh, listens better and the other one responds to pictures we're saying that all everyone can benefit from the both approaches of the words the repetition of the words and maybe using graphic organizers so I'm thinking that obviously you might take a tactics board out with you or a whiteboard or find some way of doing that but I suppose uh, another way perhaps would be to walk through the um the, the, the exercise as well would that be a sort of a thing that is the yeah, same definitely i think the the ultimate scaffold that the, the, the go-to the first one that you should use is um where you actually model what you want them to do you show them and explain it explicitly and sometimes even in teaching classrooms sometimes teachers fall foul of that they 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 give an instruction for a child to do something without actually showing them what to do and what a finished one looks like and it's it's no different in coaching you you have to show a player exactly what you want to do if they're going to understand what you want them what you want to expect of them now um the one of the ones which i know is sounds like it is more like a classroom one and maybe even a primary school classroom um example is uh, oral rehearsal with an adult so I, I'm assuming that um, we will all say together that uh, two times two is four, three times two is six. That could be, you might be holding your head in your hands. As I'm saying. <laughs> I'm thinking, we stopped doing that in about 1965. Uh, A better example would be um, in, in scaffolding children's writing. So sometimes children find it hard to... Um, compose a well-crafted sentence and so um what an example might be uh, a conversation with with nadal uh, what 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 will your sentence be before you write it down tell me what your sentence is and that conversation but just by saying it out loud it uh, helps to focus a child's thinking and it gives the, it gives the the teacher a chance to correct any misconceptions before it gets onto the paper um, ah right okay so i can now see this as um, a very good way of, way of sharing your mental model. 
Exactly. So um, you were going to say, right, well, I'm going to set up uh, an exercise here, which is going to have um, a problem in it. And uh, we're going to have to look at ways to solve it. How are you going to solve it before they actually go out there and practice it? So they're not making mistakes before they've even jumped onto the pitch. They've actually started to think think in the right terms. Is that, is that, does that make Definitely. sense? I think, I think a good example for rugby might be that, uh, I'll give, give the scrum half uh, example again, because that's my experience. Um, so th- there'll be times when um, you, you, you're, you're, as a coach, you want uh, a scrum half to kick uh, as opposed to, to feed the ball out to the backs. And um, it might be that you, you keep it really simple and you have this rule of thumb. If you're in your own, uh, within five metres of your own try line, then you kick uh, to, to, to gain territory. So um, before you then go and practice that in different areas, you, you might just have that conversation with, with the scrum half to check what they've understood. So, so uh, it might be that you stand in a part of the field and say, right, there's a scrum here. What do you do when you get the ball? And, and, and they rehearse it first. And then, and then you give them a short opportunity to actually act that out. Is It gives them a chance to be more successful because they've committed orally to what they're going to do um, in that decision-making process. And then they can almost, they can do some self-checking. Yes. Um, and they can also say, look, you know what I was trying to do? What I didn't, this bit didn't work. And therefore it's opening up a, a stronger conversation. So another, another one of the scaffolding, I mean, this is, I'm sorry, we're going to go through all of them probably by the end, which is fine. For me, uh, it's really helpful. So another one is to prioritize understanding over task completion. Yeah. Um, so uh, sometimes uh, in school, in, in lessons, uh, teachers might feel, um, and particularly teaching assistants, a research has shown this, um, that, that they might push a child to finish a piece of work um, as a priority rather than understanding what they're doing when in fact the opposite is probably what's best it doesn't if a child doesn't finish uh, their written paragraph of a story that doesn't matter as much um, as long as they've understood that what the process of what they're doing uh, because if you're pushing a child just to finish it it looks like it's finished but actually there's no substance to it so um, a, a coaching example it might be that if you're if you're running drills um, doing a drill properly is and doing it fewer times is far better than spending 10 minutes on uh, on on back drills that don't actually come off properly if that makes sense it is so they have to rather than just running the drill over and over again it's far better to to coincide that with discussions about what you're doing why what if what if uh, this situation had changed slightly what if the defense position had moved to here so, so rather than just going through motions of drills, it's, it's, it's far more important to, um, to, to, to build in mechanisms to check that they actually understand what they're doing. Right. And then that makes it much easier when they're building their skills to say yes. uh, that the reason why we're doing this now is because of this. And of course, this will motivate them as well as um, increase, their, increase their understanding. So I think we've probably uh, there are two more on the list then because we've covered yeah. quite a few of them. Um, pre-teaching intervention. Now I, I've got an idea what this might be, but I'm going to let you. Yes. Uh, so in a, help in, me a classroom, in a classroom context, it might be that um, a child doesn't have the adequate prior knowledge to uh, to do a 
particular thing. So for example, if children are multiplying two digits by two digits and they're still not quite sure about their times tables, that is completely going to hinder their success in that lesson. So rather than waiting and addressing it after when they failed, you want to kind of address it first before, fill the gaps in first before they do the complex thing. Um, so it, it might be, for example, that you've got a, uh, a scrum half who is comfortable kicking off one leg, but less comfortable kicking off the other. But actually, in some situations, they need to be able to kick off their less dominant foot. Uh, and so if you pre-teach uh, the, the, the particular thing of kicking left footed, for example, then when you get to the situation of coaching them in uh, decide on deciding which leg to kick from, kick from in different situations, that, that their weakness in their left foot kicking isn't going to be a problem. Right. OK, so um, I'm now thinking that um, it, this is trying to. So you're saying try and fill in gaps where you can before you so this is um perhaps we we're looking at more complex situations and we're trying to identify weaknesses before we get there Um, so this might be before training just grab hold of one of the players and say look today we're going to be looking at this let's just spend a bit of time working on this skill so it's not the it's not the oral rehearsal where you're doing the thinking it's actually uh right let's Let's, let's teach, reteach, relearn, yes. uh, or even start the process. And it might be that you say, well, we've got to spend some time on it afterwards. And, and it I might be as well. I mean, a lot of children benefit from um, the, the classroom explanation being the second or third time that they've interacted with something, whereas most children might be the first time they're learning something new. For some children, if they've had advanced warning, if you like, or, or already had an explanation of something, then that's then that's great too. If you've got a player who um, could do with more time hearing a good explanation, more one-on-one with the coach for checking understanding, and you do that beforehand, then when it comes to you coaching the team or a group of players, then they're far more likely to understand because it'll be the second or third time that they hear it compared to everyone else's first time. All right. So, I mean, this is not, uh, you wouldn't do this as a global intervention you would be picking no, individuals and say, i need this player to spend we need yeah. to spend a bit more time on this and this is obviously good, good 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 teaching practice good coaching practice yeah. is that you know the individual i mean i know that sounds Definitely. like we've got um, hours and hours of time to do it <laughs> but if you, if you have got the chance then this is well worth doing and even so if the, it's a few minutes just a couple of minutes is yeah. is sufficient so it might it can even be right, right, to 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 uh, the fly half for example we're running these drills today these moves here's what they are Um, we're going to run through them together but because that fly half is so crucial to the drill for everyone else you want them to make sure that they are 100% sure what's going on because if Mm -hmm. they don't get it right then the rest of the drill falls down yeah yeah. it might might be that you target a player not because they've got a weakness but because you need them to that they're crucial to the drill this is a good opportunity for differentiation, both weaker and stronger players, stronger players to give them more ownership of what they're doing and yeah. and for weaker players just obviously to get them up up to the standard yeah. uh, which is required. Now, the last one on the list that I've got is using minimal different questions. No, yes. sorry, minimally different questions. It's called variation right. theory. Yes. 
so um so what that what that is is um so, sometimes uh, i mean the example that i use is in maths and if you want children to practice adding two digits to two digits sometimes it's what teachers might do is uh, create randomized questions uh, which is fine for for some children for some children can absolutely deal with that um well but for for some that might struggle it's switching between so so many different things can be can be tricky and so what you might do is just change one thing at a time from one drill to the next you just change one thing at a time um and uh i mean a, a, an example of that uh so for, for my football experience again in in in, in developing taking crosses is that you you might very very slowly change the starting position of the ball when the, the when the drill of, of the crosses are coming in so that you kind of get you get familiar with with a feeling it is it's familiar and it's um you feel more fluent at it whereas if if you had several people on the sideline on, on each side pinging balls in uh, from different places each time that that is so much harder to attend to because you have to change your starting position you have to uh, you've got a different idea of where the, the, the flight of the ball might take it and and because there's more to concentrate on you might end up performing that skill at a lower standard so what you're doing here is reducing the change from one example to the next in order to build quicker fluency yeah and i think there's a there's a couple of things that's important to note here that it's not to say that uh, that sort of random practice is not very powerful but when we're talking about scaffolding scaffolding yeah. here is um is um a more gradual building process in uh, one of the expressions that's often used in sport is repetition without repetition right. um, so you're doing very similar things but there's enough of a variation yes to just to um mean you've got to as you say attend to it a bit more there's a great danger i think i can't remember the research but if you repeat something over and over again, the first one is not so good as the second one. The third one's better. Mm. By the fourth one, actually, you're becoming lazy and you're not putting as much effort in. So the fifth one, you're not really getting the benefit from it. Yeah. So if you can, as you say, one is you've got to have a bit of variation. But if you are trying to build up some confidence, you don't want to be... And the important thing is that, that, that the variation in, involves increases in complexity. So the variation might not be in my football example of taking crosses. It might not be uh, the fact that the ball comes in from a different starting position. It might be that there's variation in that um, a defensive player is is in the way, or an, an offensive player is in the way, or uh, uh, something, or, or there's um, something blocking your your eye your 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 line of vision so that, that's a way of adding variation but only changing one thing at a time and you're right the 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 point here about scaffolding is that it's for novices and your yeah. experienced players don't shouldn't need it because they they should uh, be able to deal with the variety and the complexity of more game-like situations right okay so we've we've gone through lots of examples then of scaffolding but i think it's important to understand why we're doing it uh, again um, and um, you've mentioned it a few times. So one of the things that you were quite clear in your blog, and I thought this was very important, is to realise what scaffolding is not. And you were very clear about that. And I think it's important that we understand that so we understand when we should use it. So what yeah. 
is scaffolding not? So uh, in a school example, um, a non-example of scaffolding is, let's say you've got children multiplying two digits by two digits. Um, but for a couple, uh, one child or a couple of children, you just got them doing the two times table. That is completely different to what everyone else is learning. Um, and although they might need to work on the two times table, that's just going to further entrench gaps uh, between them and their peers. So setting a completely different task is not scaffolding. Scaffolding is enabling everyone to do something that is complex and appropriate for their age of development, um, but with a little bit of help along the way to ease cognitive load, to um, to make them more successful, to, to enable success, basically. Right. So um, in, a, in a sporting, I mean, I think it's a little bit harder to think of that in a sporting context, to be honest. Uh, so I'm trying to think then, uh, we are, we've got a group of players and what you're saying is that uh, we're not going to split them off and one group does one type of pass and another group does another type of pass. That's not yeah. scaffolding. Scaffolding yeah. is that you're doing the same task, but yes. I'm going to give some of these players a little bit more support through yes. these methods. Yes, you can imagine. I mean, I suppose thinking about it now, an equivalent might be if you've got if you've got a, a group of uh, kids play, uh, in, a, in a football coaching situation and you, you've got a, a complex passing duel going on, but there's one child who needs to work on their passing and instead they're just uh, uh, with on their own with the ball against the wall, just trying to be accurate. That 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 is the child may need that, but now's not the time to be doing it because everyone else is working on something more complex. You need to find a way of making them successful in what everyone else is doing. Right. Okay. They can work and, on that at other drill another time, mm. uh, but but not in that session. Right. Okay. So uh, what it is is uh, creating for the coach. They've got in their mind. Uh, and they probably need to prepare this before they start the coaching session. I mean, I think that coaches can probably do this naturally. Yes. But they've got to think, actually, uh, child A will need a bit more scaffolding today uh, mm. than child B. So I'm going maybe need to chunk it down for them. I might need to catch up with them beforehand. Uh, they may... Uh, they may enter the exercise a little bit later on, or they may. You might just change the parameters as they come in. Now, one of the things you you say in your blog is it you don't make the work easier. So mm. I'm a bit worried that that might be the perception. So what do you mean by that? Uh, so it's a bit like that doing a different task. You, if if there's no challenge to the task still, then what they're learning, they 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 still need to 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 be challenged. There still needs to be ambition. Um, and that's there is a fine line there because I, um, I just got into conversation with somebody about this on on Twitter rather recently, and uh, and that if you are taking out elements to reduce cognitive load, if you're breaking it down, then what one could argue that you're making the task easier. But what I mean is uh, you're not giving them an easier, a, a different, easier task to do. You're you're making the complex task more accessible for them. It's, a, it's right. a, a little bit of a nuance, but it's a, it's an important one. Yeah, okay. Uh, now, um, we've got, uh, we've identified 10 methods of scaffolding. I mean, I'm sure that uh, we could maybe uh, put two or three of them together and say there's eight or there may be 12 or 13, but let's say there are 10 to, uh, to start with. Um, they 
are they all of equal importance or are there two or three that you would say, right, if I'm going to be effective at this and I need a starting point, let's get these two or three uh, under my belt and I'll be using these more often and I might use the others at other occasions. Do you know, this is a really, really important to think about because what's happened in education a little bit sometimes is that that le- leaders get hold of something that might be useful and then they start mandating it across the school, uh, regardless of context. And, and so you might have uh, a, a senior leader thinking, okay, we need to uh, we need to do minimally different examples, and I want to see minimally different examples in every single maths lesson or every single science lesson or everything else. Uh, but of course, that's that's madness. You, it, it, what the scaffolding strategy that you choose should be the one that best enables the child or the player to to do the complex task, and that, and that is entirely dependent on the task that you want to do. Which is why I go back to the original point: is that great teachers have really good subject knowledge, not just of the things they're teaching them, but of how children think about the content and what those misconceptions are. And so. Really, you want to design scaffolds to prevent misconceptions happening or to to correct misconceptions because we know how they're going to think about something. How powerful is that to, to understand how a child or a player thinks? And that's making me ponder that uh, we obviously go back and look at our own experiences of playing the game and how we were coached. And that, that helps us build our own mental model. Yeah. I wonder what is a good way for us uh, over and above asking questions of course um and observing um do we get a better understanding of how our charges think or is it just about asking good questions listening carefully and observing i think um it comes it comes i mean for in a school context if if teachers need to know for the thing that they're teaching what are all the small things that are that what are the prerequisites that they need to know in order to be successful with this and then if they're um secure through uh, some assessment or just some questioning then then what how can i break this complex task up in such a way that i can explain all the difficult parts of it and get them to practice each bit and then pull it all together it's it's breaking down the the knowledge of uh, a particular task uh, into its smallest components to make it far easier to teach and assess the individual bits so it, it takes i mean for, for, for a rugby coach it takes them to to fully understand every aspect of the game and uh breaking breaking the game down into its complex tasks and um and then breaking them down further into the, the components of those tasks now um famously in teaching and being teaching myself uh we often said that uh, as long as you're a chapter ahead of the kids, then you're probably going to get away with it. Now, obviously, uh, that is uh, said with a, a wry smile, um, but also um, it's quite scary for a coach who's thinking, well, actually, I need to have an, a year of study to get to this stage. I mean, there is hope that you may be, you, you can, if you can find out as much as you can about maybe the stuff which is in front of you, you mm. will still be relatively successful, even if you haven't got um, the full knowledge. Or am, yeah, I, I, mean, am uh, I barking up the wrong tree there? No, I think, um, I think uh, that the domain specific knowledge is really important. It's one of the reasons why you don't see very often crossover 
of coaches from one sport to another because their their success as a coach is entirely dependent on their contextual knowledge of the sport. You can't take the most successful basketball coach of all time and put them in front of um, uh, a volleyball team and expect the same success because although that coach might have traits, personality traits and ways of working, some of those things might be transferable. The most important thing is the domain knowledge of of the sport and and a, a rugby coach will have from their own playing days and from their experience so far, they'll have a mental model. It may be well-developed or it may be less well-developed, but they'll have something to work on. And that's the commitment of teachers and the commitment of coaches to, to get better involves study, not of the content as such, but of how the players and the, and the children think about it. And again, it goes back to that point that, that, um, that teachers, plat- that, that on average, teachers plateau after a couple of years, because after that, the, the support is less intensive and we kind of uh, level out a little bit. I suppose what is maybe scary then is that um, we are listening to um, coaches who are in different domains um, and say maybe the classroom over the sports arena and they are giving us um, ideas on how to coach, yet they are actually coached in those um in those domains, there must, there must be some common ground. I think so. Um, yeah, the, the, the common ground is the science of learning, um, right. I, I think. Um, and whether you're teaching someone to multiply numbers together or to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to carry out a line-out drill, the conditions that those players or children need will be the same. Everyone needs prior knowledge everyone needs some good explanations and modeling everyone needs feedback everyone needs practice regardless of that and so it, it there, there is some crossover there but it but it but it is dependent on the contextual knowledge that alone isn't enough i can't walk into um uh as a head teacher of a school i can't walk into uh the, being the head of another business although i've got experience in managing staff and HR and all sorts of things like that doesn't mean I'll be successful running a business because my domain knowledge is about education and schools and not about running an airline for example yeah there's some useful crossover but it's entirely dependent domain knowledge dependent yeah and I think uh, that's uh, that's important that um, we, we forget that we need to keep becoming greater experts at our domain Exactly. And, I mean, obviously, the best coaches that we know are well renowned for yes. being nerdy in their in their game understanding. They will be watching Definitely. games all the time, uh, much to their the frustration of their partners. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and that's always been a good excuse to watch an, another game of rugby. And yeah. it's been fascinating. Just, um, I mean, I, I know that um, um, in a sense, initially we were talking or uh, our connection was through the classroom ideas of scaffolding, but it's been fantastic to sort of put it into a sports context. And interestingly, actually, of course, the goalkeeper um, example you gave could be applicable for a fullback or a winger or any player taking high ball. And uh, maybe we could think about that. I mean, for me, one of the, the key takeaways is that how important it is to know how your players think. 
Um, and that, though that seems very obvious, I think sometimes we forget that. And and you said nuance of what you say. You just got to know when, when to when to scaffold and when not to, mm. and which one's appropriate in different situations. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm glad that I've asked a question which you've sort of almost knocked me back on. <laughs> over uh, what's the most important one and um, it makes me think that I just need to go back over them again and prepare maybe more effectively but I mean the thing is that of course you're not expected to go out to the pitch and have them uh, implanted in your brain although you'll do some of them naturally is to is to plan interventions to a certain extent would, would that would you say that was true uh, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Can you, can you rephrase that? I'm not quite yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, well, my, my sense is that um, before you are coaching a session or a lesson, you will have identified maybe some of the players who will need some scaffolding. And mm. therefore, you're not making it up on the spot. Oh, I just need to use a bit of uh, um, uh, minimal minimal variations. You will have thought beforehand, right, with this particular complex task with these players especially these players i shall be using this form yeah i mean that's exactly what uh good good teachers do that is good lesson planning um uh, it's not the content planning. it's not the content it's the way that you teach it more yeah. than i'm going to use drill x and then drill y and in some ways uh, it comes as a, as a link here because um to to be that flexible to be able to do that you 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 almost need the the subject content, whether that's the maths national curriculum or whether that's aspects of rugby, you need that to be so autonomous and easily accessed without thinking about it so that you can concentrate on and you can dedicate all of your work and memory on how the players or the children in front of you are reacting to what you're to, to what's going on and then your knowledge of them it, it is definitely I mean, it takes planning ahead, but it also it's, it takes that commitment to the subject knowledge to to free up your working memory to think about other parts of it. Oh, brilliant! And um, I, I just think that some of I know my some of my training sessions have fallen apart because I've not I've jumped too far ahead without necessarily making sure that they know where they're going and and oh, and, and lessons as well. That's common for teachers teaching lessons as well. Sometimes they fall flat because that we their children haven't responded as we expected them to or they had a misconception that we didn't uncover or they lacked some prior knowledge that we didn't know about that's exactly what happens in classrooms up and down the country every day yeah and uh, i think to, to add to that and again using my own classroom experience as well as my rugby experience is that um you are often teaching the same lesson to a new group but mm. you've forgotten that they've not they've not been on the same journey as the previous time you taught yes. it and you you can't quite understand why they haven't it hasn't yes. quite zinged as well as it happened before well nick this has been fascinating uh to delve a bit uh, deeper into this and thank you for your flexibility in using some <laughs> rugby examples yeah well there we are so, so main knowledge uh, goes a long way that's uh, yeah. uh, or maybe it's dangerous um, yes. So if people want to find out more um, and delve deeper into the some of the other things that you do, where do they need to go? Uh, so uh, on, on Twitter, uh, you can find me at, uh, at Mr. Nick Hart uh, and my blog, which is very much school uh, and education based, um, is uh, thisismyclassroom.wordpress.com.
Okay. And uh, links to that will be in the notes. So, Nick, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, Dan. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. And uh, if you want to find out more about this podcast or any of the other podcasts from Rugby Coach Weekly, simply go to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the podcast button. And uh, this podcast is also available on all good retailers of podcasts. So thanks again to Nick and thank you all for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you all very soon. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to RugbyCoachWeekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.